welcome to the first lit bits of the of the summer season. I'm James Kidd, um, and I'm joined as always by the person I consider to be the podfather, Adam Smythe. And today our guest is the comedy writer, sitcom writer, Jonathan Fake, who is our first guest to have made the Guinness Book of Records um, for writing the most complained about advert um, well, until recently of all time. Fantastic which was, achievement. Which is really... Thank you. Um, next week we'll have the other person. Um, we, and then we'll finish. And then we'll finish. <laughs> so what was the advert? It was um, an advert for Pot Noodle and the end line was the slag of all snacks. And we were given a list after the event of the most offensive swear words. Am I allowed to swear on the podcast? Sure, yeah. The most encouraged. offensive swear words you could possibly use on TV. And slag, to our surprise, was the fifth most offensive swear word, according to this list. Wow, wow. Well, I was, would have put it way, way down. Mm. But, but your advert, did it aired on TV? Or? It aired on TV, and then 20 people complained. Gosh. So, so a terrible number like that. Because obviously the number of people who complain about adverts is minimal. You have to be... How many fairly pe- mental. How many people bought pot noodle though? Same twenty. So basically, this this is a, an unsubtle clue to our subject today, which for yes. for the for the fifth lit bits, I think, uh, which is the relation between advertising and, for want of a better word, literature. I've got, I wanted to start with two ads that do use poetry, mm. and I think one of them works, and one of them really doesn't work. And if I read them out, you'll see why very clearly why it doesn't work and maybe that'll get us going okay so the first one is a mcdonald's ad um and if you can imagine the visuals are lots of ordinary humble folk in a mcdonald's eating their hamburgers doing their ordinary things and then the poem is as follows now the laborers and cablers and council motion tablers were just passing by and the gothy types and scoffy types and like their coffee frothy types were just passing by Those on their own whilst on the phone, dunking McNuggets and having a moan, were just passing by. And the IT bods with taps and prods eating Big Mac whilst writing their blogs were just passing by. And the little folk who share a joke, who nudge and poke about that bloke, who slurps his coke and gives his goatee beard a stroke, were just passing by. There's a McDonald's for everyone. I think that works. But if we compare it to... This advert, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too, Bank of Switzerland, <laughs> the bank you can trust. It's very funny, the idea that Bank of Switzerland would just sit around and think, yeah, you know, there's those ideas about honour and dignity and self-sacrifice are what the banking industry is all about. <laughs> But it's, it's interesting because it's such a plain poem in lots of ways, and yet what you're saying is that the context of advertising is, isn't strong enough to support even this fairly straightforward sort of sentiment. I think the other one works because actually it's, not, it's very light. In fact, it's not even a poem. The McDonald's one, which everyone talked about at the time as being amazing, McDonald's are using poetry. It's it? not do a we, poem. Do we, do we know? Yes, it's a lyric from a Rolf Harris song. <laughs> what, this? The McDonald's one. Is it really? It's, 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 it's fascinating because it, it does sound like a kind of popular idea of what poetry is because it sounds you could you, it sounds kind of like Larkin put through a sort of food blender, doesn't it? A little bit, in that it has that kind of mournful everyday quality and that accessibility and its formal regularity, but it's also kind of 
chatty as two. But I, I like this refrain, we're just passing by, because that reminded me of the kind of seats that McDonald's install where you can't sit down for a long time and they kind of shoot you off and force you out of the door. It seemed to be saying, you know, come and have a McDonald's, but don't stay more than four minutes. Yes. Um, you have to kind of roll on by. So it seemed, it seemed, it seemed uh, to be working in that way. But there's also a big difference between the two, which might have something to do with us relative successes, which is that everyone knows Kipling's if to some degree. And, and reusing a poem that already has such a long life and already by line two, you're thinking of, well, I was thinking of Des Lynam and you were thinking of Raphael Nadal. All those other concepts come flooding in and it makes it even more absurd that the Bank of Switzerland is sort of claiming it for its own. Poetry is no longer part of our shared culture. Mm. I, was reading, I was reading a book by, is it Paul Fussell or Paul Fussell about the First World War? And he was saying that in the First World War, we can't appreciate that everyone read poetry. They all knew it. So they were all in the trenches. They weren't on. We would all be on computer games. They all just read poetry so that everyone was steeped in it. And so they had these shared reference points. And advertising has to play on those shared reference points to give a warm feeling of community. Mm. You can't use poetry because everyone just goes, what's that? I don't know it. Yeah. And it makes me angry. Yeah. You're shit. James. I, I was, I was going to read something, actually, which was about the language of poetry and, and it was from a book called the, the Imagery of Power by Mr Inglis Fred Inglis and he quotes this advert um, the most natural taste under the sun wouldn't it be nice to drink your Britvic where the fruit grows no question mark I notice glorious sunshine ripening plump juicy fruit golden oranges glistening in the warmth of the sun fresh squeezed to surrender all that goodness Spoil yourself, drink Britvic, and enjoy the most natural taste under the sun. Insist on Britvic. There's no substitute for the best fruit juice. Orange, grapefruit, pineapple, tomato, apricot. And what Mr Inglis says, I thought we, he says quite interestingly, is that we don't really read that very closely, though certain phrases would leap out at us. Glorious sunshine, golden oranges glistening. And at the end he says this, it is like a debased and emasculated version of Keats to Autumn, to bend with apples the most, gr- the most cottage trees and fill all fruit with ripeness to the core. And it's sort of interesting that, that the way that maybe do adverts take what poetry can offer and it's a bit like sort of squeezing the, the life out of it a bit. I mean, is this what... what well, there's one, one of the complaints about adverts is that we take language that ought to have great value so you take adjectives and you debase them by saying the new fiat punto is awesome and amazing and you've just ruined the words awesome amazing because that's the phrase hundred percent seems particularly debased by this notion that everything is a hundred percent certain words have been coined in adverts Mm. um Mm. athlete's foot bo apparently and also plowman's lunch were all created by Mm. advertising Mm. executives and i quite like plowman's lunch but i now feel debased and, and, a, and a related thing, not words that have been coined, but phrases that began mm. in adverts, which then migrate into other bits of culture. I mean, most famously, recently, David Cameron to Angela Eagle. Uh, Calm down, dear, wasn't it? That's what he said from those Eshaw adverts featuring the um, yes. film director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael Winner. Michael, Michael Winner. Winner. Yeah. Um, and I wrote down, I scribbled down a few catchphrases which might mm. do the same thing. Anyway, here are a few of them. The future's bright, the future's orange. Good things come to those who wait, which is a Guinness ad. Have a break, have a Kit Kat. Um, and then, <laughs> this is really, it's particularly, like, Lloyd's TSB advert, um, for the journey. 
which I find particularly good. But so so those catchphrases are in part already cliches, aren't they? The future's bright, the future's bright, good things come to those who wait, which are kind of reanimated with the advert. But there's, it was a very remarkable moment when Cameron said that, I think. And obviously it was kind of offensive that he said it. And you saw a glint into his dark soul, I think, when he yes. said that. But there was a funny sense also of, David Cameron watches advert, watches East Shore adverts. And I watch East Shore adverts and we're all part of the same. And a and hundred years ago, would he have pulled a, on a reference from a line of poetry? Or, yeah, yeah or it would be something from Homer. Where, where our culture's gone that yeah. when we draw on quotes, they're yeah. now quotes from a car insurance ad. Yeah, but it, but it says something powerful about adverts that it kind of mm. gives us a script now to some degree, it gives us phrases, gives us things we can turn to. And he was deemed witty for simply... Re, you know, parroting that that catchphrase, which is a misunderstanding of the word witty. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but also you've got to remember that's deliberate. We, in agencies, people sit around and that's one big thing you try and do is to get a phrase moved into the language. You want kids to repeat it in the playground, yeah. or you want an action. Um, a friend of mine wrote the original or the big tango ads where the guy, the big orange guy, runs up and slaps someone around the head, mm-hmm. and that ad got banned because people copied it. They'd run up to their friends and slap them around the head and burst their eardrums. When we wrote the Slag of All Snacks, the inspiration for that was Saddam Hussein. It was the time of the first Gulf War, and he'd promised the world the mother of all battles. Mm. And that gave me the idea, the Slag of All Snacks. Mm. So you take a sort of phrase that's got a bounce that people maybe half remember, add a few words from your product in there, and hopefully it will latch onto their memory. Brain, whatever. So and it, it does open. I was just thinking, actually, when you were saying this, that, that, that a shared experience, you do sometimes think of global brands. I, I suppose just do it has become yes. as memorable a phrase mm. for, for Nike. I still don't know what it means. But. Well, I don't know what it means either. I mean, if I, I think Tiger Woods took this quite literally. I so adverts kind of, fill, kind of fill the role that proverbs or little sententious moral maxims or religion might have, where you would have these little passages and nuggets that would pass around, I suppose, from person to person. And there can be something transformative about advertising, I suppose. Uh, many years ago, in a, in a, in a lifetime far, far away, I worked on a marketing uh, company, and a friend described a successful advert as being a bit like Jesus turning uh, water into wine, that if you take a bottle of clear um, liquid stick a label on it, put a good advert into it. It could be anything in that bottle. It could be David Cameron's spittle. Mm-hmm. And if you advertised it the right way <coughs> and sold it, could you actually transform this kind of ghastly brew into something Absolutely. glorious by the power of image, word? And and it would be something, I suppose, transubstantive, mm. yes. if there is such a word. Uh, advertising is quite uh, is subtler than it might seem at first and is kind of using a kind of perhaps poetic heritage in a cl- in a clever way and and giving us a kind of script that we can take take on and, and, and redeploy as in as in Cameron's great rhetorical moment which is probably what he'll be remembered for more than anything else but I wanted to ask talk a little bit about how we read and engage with adverts compared to how we read and engage with poetry or, or maybe other forms of literature novels and so on because it strikes me it's quite different and it's quite interesting how adverts um, come at us because if we want to read a poem or if James wants to read another Geoffrey Archer novel we go looking for a Geoffrey Archer novel, we go looking for a poem, and we find it, we get it from a bookshelf, and, and, and we want it to give us something. It puts us in a, not exactly an abject position, but we're seeking it out in that way, I think. Whereas adverts come at us all the time, and if we're walking yes. down the street, the advert we see, and then we walk on, and we see another one, and then we walk 
that route the next day we see it again and uh there's that fascinating period of time in between seeing it the first time and the second time which which must do interesting things to that advert if we see a you know an insurance advert once then we have a day and then we see it again it's been kind of percolating in our head things have stuck to it connotations have grown up around it so it seems quite a complicated way to read a text i mean if you were to read a poetry read a poem and then go away and read it again a day later i think you'd have quite a profound relationship with the poetry compared to reading it once being baffled and then watching come dine with me <laughs> which is my philosophy so is that how i mean i wonder how in within advertising is their model of the consumer of the advert not paying much attention but hitting them many times with the same thing um. I think you always start by assuming you're butting in on someone's mm. life. They don't want you to be there. Mm. You're interrupting their TV show. You're you're annoying them. Mm. First, how can you how can you stop them and make them pay attention? And usually that's done by the very very simple method of boosting the volume as high as possible. If you watch a TV show, when you get to the adverts, you'll notice the sound levels lift that's because true. everyone goes when they're in the studio. The studio. Um, the sound guy will say, how high do you want the levels? Do you want them normal like a TV show? Or do you want them much, much louder yeah. so everyone can hear it? If you don't have a remote control, it's unbelievable. Adverts are all said incredibly loud. Um, so on a simplest level, they're very loud. Um, and then you write it so it will definitely jump in and punch through. So you're starting this kind of axiom is that people don't want the advert and they're going to be annoyed. Well, I think, you if, you're good at, I think if you're good at advertising, you start with that. Um it was making me think of, we were talking before about the advertiser compared to an artist, and I think it was Goebbels who said that to be a great artist, you need to be both a fanatic and a cynic. And you, I think Wordsworth said something similar. So you need to have the, the moment of passion. So if you're a poet, you, oh, I feel the love for this girl. And so you need to have all those emotions, but then you need to go away and cynically think, how emotion, can I best express these? Motion recollecting tranquility. Motion recollecting tranquility. And equally, to be an advertiser, you you need partly to believe in the product, because if you're too cynical, you sort of write it with a weariness. Um, but equally, you need to be cynical enough to go away and think. You need to understand that the viewer couldn't care less. I've um, I've met people who work in advertising who will only wear Nike shoes because they work on Nike brand and they believe that Nike shoes are the best. Method advertising. And you think that's obviously mental because, <laughs> I mean, they're not. And, you know, we're all grown-ups here. I, I remember worked years ago on Molson Beer and was taken out for drinks by the head of Molson. And we went to a bar in Toronto and he said, what would you like to drink? And I said, oh, do you have a Heineken, please. And he stopped and he gave me a weird look. And then my friend nudged me and said, no, no, you've got to, you've got to ask for a Molson. But I had this thing I wanted to read, which was, uh, so I, we were talking about, or I was talking about adverts sort of uh, walking down the street and adverts coming, coming at you and bits, mm. bits of text and billboards and so on. And, 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 and um, that's being unlike poetry when you seek it out. But there's a poem here by the American poet Robert Creeley, who died in 2005, um, who... Uh, I wrote a poem called Eight Plus, um, which is um, a series of inscriptions for eight bollards, the, the epigraph says, at 7th and Figueroa Street in Los Angeles. And there are a series of um, inscriptions, which I think we're at least invited to imagine being pinned to these bollards. And it sounded to me that they had something of the quality of the catchphrase or punchline to an advert. But I'll just read a few of them because I think they're rather nice. And that's good enough reason in itself. 
So you have to imagine these as, as mini bill billboards that will pass walking. You went by so quickly, thinking there's a whole world in between. How much I would give just to know you're standing in whatever way here. No way to tell you anything more than this one. Nothing left out. It's all in a heap. All the people completed. Quite like that one. And then no one speaks alone. It comes out of something. They say this used to be a forest with a lake. And then finally, and this is my favourite, you've got a nice face and kind eyes and all the trimmings. Mm. <laughs> can, I, can I see your poetry and raise you some genuine end lines to compare them? That would be great. Mm. So white, it's blue white. Beans means Heinz. Bish bash bosh. Did somebody say McDonald's? If you were better looking, you'd be more popular. <laughs> and I think you can look at... Um, I suppose there is something poetic in the way that in the language of advertising, it's all about concision. and But also there are poetic concepts in there. Or So white, it's blue white is an interesting idea that something is so much one thing that it's actually become another thing. Like I'm so in love with this woman that I, I'm full of fury. It seems like a nice idea. Um, and also poetry is, is very good at um, taking language that we think we know and even cliches. Um, and making it a bit strange and making it a bit weird. Yes. And, 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 and alienating us from it, and um, which is an amazing thing to do. And I think those lines are good examples of that, I think. Well, at least when you read it out then. That last one about, so if you're more attractive, you're more popular. Actually, what was that? That's it marvelous. was a headline I wrote myself for um, a show called, oh God, it was an HBO show that was on Channel 4. It was about plastic surgeons. And we wrote Nip headlines. Nip Tuck was for. That was one of the headlines. Of Can you read it? Just read it again. It was if you were better looking, you'd be more popular. But that, I mean, yeah. It was just um, they were all like that. They're all quite nasty, and there were pictures. The posters were very plain, with pictures of a model with um, all the the tapered plastic surgery lines drawn on them. They got loads of complaints. I was before I was coming. I was thinking about adverts that I've remembered and, and therefore probably enjoyed <laughs> in recent years, and. Um, they all tend to be funny adverts, which is interesting. Um, um, the Peter Kay one <coughs> that people talk about, there's a series of them for John Smith, yes, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. which I was looking up on the internet um, this afternoon in my research lab. And um, there's the famous one of the Olympics, when there's the diving, in the diving competition, yes, when they yeah, have those kind of um, svelte, mm. svelte athletes doing it, and then he does it. And there's the, the, the glory of it, you, it's when he's running along, he's plunging in, and just in the back you can hear the commentator, the running bomb, in this quiet <laughs> way. And it's, so it's very nicely done. But, but then, then it's him in an in a Indian restaurant with his, with his friends and a daughter, four-year-old yes. phones, and he gives very bad advice. He's, you know, don't worry about the monster under the bed worry about the burglars they're, they're going Coming to through the window yeah yes. and that was a weird i mean just as a, as a bit of advertising it's it's and then the one where he's playing football next to all those people doing keep him ups and then he whacks it. it onto the garage that echoes with the ball bouncing but um it just seemed an odd i mean he's funny and that's their funny adverts and is that enough that we just have to put yes. john smith next to something that's funny or, well terrible truth is probably i mean he's funny in a way that you could argue it's a John Smith's way of being funny. In mm. that he's quite down to earth in all those ads. Mm. You take something that's moderately sophisticated, like diving or eating Indian food. Yeah. Or, but but he, he's very, very plain and down to earth in those scenes. Yeah. So you could, in a meeting, I would argue that the sense of humour is exactly on brand. Yeah. Um, 
It's also it is it is because I was thinking as you were talking to it's so they're not aspirational in the way you think adverts would be. You know, we'll buy this ice cream and you'll be marvelous. But they're aspirational, but they're aspirational in, in terms a, of his wit. So you want yes, to, they're you aspirational want to... in a common sense sort of way that John Smith's drinkers probably think of themselves as well. They're northern. They're not tricked by any southern nanciness. They won't eat sushi. They put their money on the table. They're it's a certain sort of aspiration. Yeah. We're going to get complaints. I'm from the north. I'm allowed to say these things. The, the other thing why they're funny is that um, although it looks very uh, relaxed and offhand, there's the, there is a credible precision and care in the use of language, like you know, the running bomb in the background or the way Peter Case says it's the burglars coming. He says it picks out, and in a way, your line was very good because it seemed like just a thing people say, but it's, it's well, also, one it's of the, one more is, careful than that. One thing advertising does teach you for writing more generally is is to think very, very... I suppose that is the similar thing to poetry, that it makes you think very, very, very carefully about every single word. Which is presumably another reason why the Bank of Switzerland, apologies, you know, listeners working for it, the Radio Kipling is so bad, because there's just too many words. But that's also why a phrase like um, the slag of all snacks, if you wish to do a, a Christopher Ricks-esque reading on it, it's a rather nice phrase, isn't it? It's sort of nicely balanced with slag and snacks, it pick, there's a constant picking up of a slag, pick, all picks up slag. It just struck me as, as you were reading that, James, was that the kind, of, the kind of comprehension that we have when we hear a good line is interesting, isn't it? Because the slag of all snacks, I mean, it immediately speaks to you and you say, I understand that. It, it, something inside you gets it. But it's actually quite hard to explain, as we were saying, what it actually means until you unpack it in that way. And I think that is, again, quite like poetry, quite like some kind of poetry like Ashbury which is puzzling and difficult um, in that something is communicated very quickly, but then it's quite hard to articulate what that is, hence the industry of literary criticism. Um, but you can get there maybe in the end if you dig and dig and dig. But, but it's that immediate kind of rapport. Well, I was wondering, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting, actually, the straining to explain adverts. I did find this an, yet another book in my... James has a mountain of books. About a mountain of books. I would have thought it's a fairly, it's a, which is obviously a, a great uh, example for a, uh, an audio pod, but it's a picture of Catherine Deneuve looking unbelievably beautiful. Um, she's advertising Chanel Number no. 5, and it says it's one of the pleasures of being a woman, um, which I think is fairly self-explanatory. Catherine Deneuve, Chanel Number no. 5, French actress. Even if you didn't know who Catherine Deneuve was, this sort of goddess um, uh, staring out directly at you suggests enormous seduction. And, and this extraordinary person... Um, Fred Inglis again? No, this is Jay Williamson, decoding advertisements from 1978. The woman is witty, confident, therefore the product is outspoken, in brackets, a typical piece of anthropomorphism, yet still devastatingly feminine. It is important for Chanel to distinguish between number five and number 15, and the difference between the classical feminine style of Catherine Deneuve and the outspoken yet feminine, not into karate yet by a long way model, creates this distinction. The, thing, the interesting thing that struck me about that title, James, was it's decoding adverts. Decoding advertisements. Advertisements. And decoding is an interesting word, isn't it? Because it does imply, in relation to how you would very, very rarely get a book on literary criticism called Decoding Keats mm. or Decoding Pope. And decoding suggests that there's an answer or there's a, there's, a, there's a kernel there which you can get to and work out in the world of advertising. Whereas in literature, that's a very dodgy claim and and you would be much more likely to emphasize the endless ambiguity and kind of fruitful levels of meaning that just multiply and multiply so maybe maybe that is a difference in how we think about adverts and, and literature maybe are two, are two different things happening one 
is w in the world of literature, if you say the word intention, you're immediately murdered and then and then killed. Mm. And but with an adverts, it's you know what the intention, intention is. is. Yeah. But that may not be the actual way an adverts works. We don't say the reason that Catherine Deneuve is an interesting person for Chanel Number no. Five is because she sells products. That's what she does. But that, that's the end of the, the means of something slightly different. But intention is intention raises the issue of authorship, doesn't it? And 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 we talk we, we're worried about talking about authorship in terms of a poem because if we read If by Rudyard Kipling or if we're forced to hear Harvey Keitel read it. You know, we, we think there's a gap between the narrator and the author and we wouldn't want to necessarily see it as a true candid reflection of Kipling's feelings, etc., etc. But with an advert, it's, it's, it's complicated for different reasons because presumably there's not a single person behind an advert. There's not the equivalent of Rudyard Kipling writing and solely on, in his own terms. Is there a team and is it a collaborative a I mean, process? I think that's why, as an art form, it's interesting because there'll be... I mean, because it's obviously it's a vision, so there's the director, the film director, then there's the actor bringing something to it. There'll be the people who wrote it originally. Then there'll be the musician who'll write a score for it. And then sitting above all that will be, I don't know, Mr. Tango or Mr. Pot Noodle, mm. who will stand back and will have the final say. Yeah. So in some ways, as a kind of collaborative model of creativity it's more like theater or more like film perhaps but it's also it's also very like how literature used to be a long time ago in the 16th and 17th centuries when you had patrons and when poets would write for aristocrats or the court and saw no conflict yes. between having artistic ambitions and serving the core and even serving say a protestant foreign policy in the 1590s and writing kind of sonnets um at the same time so it, it's it, it fits quite nicely with that and, and as you were talking about Sister Act 2, immediately, <laughs> inevitably, I started thinking about Ben Johnson. Whoopi, um, of course, yes. Who is, you know, implicit throughout the film. Wrote and, Sister um, Act 1, I believe. <laughs> so, so, so Ben Johnson, not the Canadian sprinter, but the um, <laughs> poet, a contemporary of Shakespeare's, um, wrote, um, is interesting for all kinds of reasons. One of the reasons is that he's one of the first people to have his works printed in a big printed book and making... Uh, it, and, uh, interesting because he made the case that this is a legitimate thing to do it's not shameful to print as it was often thought in the 17th century it's not ungentlemanly like having a sky dish on your flat um, but it's it's a reasonable thing to do and he has this fascinating tortured series of epigrams at the beginning where he tries to justify moving into print and um, and he talks to his bookseller about how he wants them to be sold and he basically says, I'll read the poem in, in, in a second but he basically says um, here are my books, you can sell them, but don't really try and sell them. Don't advertise them, because then you'll get the wrong sort. Then you'll get buffoons who don't understand the poem. You can put them on the bookshop, but only give them to people who really want to look for them. Um, and <clears throat> the word you need to know in advance is Bucklesbury, which is the vegetable market, um, which uh, you'll, you'll see features later on. So this is Ben Johnson's tortured description of sell my book, but don't sell my book um, to my bookseller. Thou that makes gain thy end and wisely well, Calls the book good or bad as it doth sell. Use mine so too. I give thee leave. But crave for the luck's sake, it thus much favour have to lie upon my stall till it be sought, not offered as it made suit to be bought, nor have my title leaf on posts or walls or in cleft sticks advanced to make calls for termers or some clerk-like serving man who scarce can spell the hard names, whose knight less can. If without these vile arts, I'm looking at you, Jonathan, when I read this yes. line, without these vile arts it will not sell, 
send it to Bucklesbury, there twill well, meaning those last two lines. If it won't sell without you having to actually advertise it, then send it to the vegetable market where you can use it as wrapping paper for tomorrow's um, parsnips and Brussels sprouts. I mean, that's fascinating about the, the, from the very beginning, there is a conflict between art and advertising. I was reading earlier that E.M. Forster, Bertrand Russell formed a group to complain when there was the first whiff of a commercial television station being mooted because they thought that it was inimical to art. Apparently, Franco Zeffirelli tried to sue a Milan television company who inserted 18 advertising breaks into a screening of um, his Romeo and Juliet, which I would have thought massively improved massively it. Um, gives the, the audience time to take a break and then come back with more or you go renewed away. energy to appreciate. Well, yeah, I would have, you go away more. during the actual Shakespeare and that's in time right. to come <laughs> back and watch the Think of it as a series of adverts with little bursts of Shakespeare interspersed. But, but that's fascinating. That's, fascinating. But they're all wrong, aren't they? I mean, Johnson's wrong in the sense that he's... He's doing it anyway, and he does publish these poems, and they're interesting and important, and he's trying to have it both ways. Here's a printed book, buy it, but don't buy it unless you really want to and you're clever. Mm. And um, there's a danger that we, that we believe Ian Forster and, 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 and don't... Where does, I was going to say, where does that... Because I was thinking about this. Where does the idea come from that the artist should be removed from commerce? Because as you say, painters obviously used to paint for patrons. And is it from the romantics, where you have to be an aristocrat wandering around Europe with a trust fund behind you? Or is it all the way back to Plato where you separate the mind and body and only a grubby person would be concerned about how they pay their mortgage? Well, for Johnson, it's complicated because he's there are different conflicts going on in that he's, he's not worried about having aristocratic patrons and he's not worried about writing for to create political change and he's not worried to have a great court career, which is what he's after. What he's worried about is moving into print specifically and having the wrong kind of people read his work. So the fear for him, the shame for him in having his work printed is that you'll get bad readers. Do you have to understand human nature in the way that if you were, say, writing a novel, you would you would have to have the same kind of insights? Could we, could we draw that I kind of comparison? I building myself up into something I'm not if I said yes. But is there something like that? I mean, essentially, I, there is something like that happening. I read the, the account of the man who invented athlete's foot. Um, and apparently it was a it was a form of horse cleaning product, and he realised that it also cured ringworm on the foot, but that ringworm might not be the most attractive thing to come up with athlete's foot. And the account described this as a moment of genius. So is there something also happening that maybe is that is advertising and is the mythology surrounding advertising things like Mad Men? Um, are these using the sorts of tropes that we might think about the genius, uh, as Adam was saying, that the notions of authority? Um, Donald Draper, you know, working to the last minute and suddenly having a moment of inspiration to say, we're going to put a big-breasted woman to sell your car. And people yes. going... But there uh, is, the, the, the people are drawing those kinds of... Um, I talk. think a lot of that comes back to... There's a guy called Edward Bernays who was the nephew of Freud, who was the first guy who... He, he was They call him the father of PR or the father of advertising. And he was a brilliant man. He invented... You're talking about Plowman's Lunch. He invented bacon and eggs as a breakfast. <laughs> and he um, he got women smoking cigarettes so they would die of cancer like men. So, you know, he's a great man in many ways. Um, but he had brilliant ideas. He used psychological techniques to um, obviously to get inside people's heads. And he's, his idea was you don't, you don't sell people things in the short term. You change their whole view of the world 
so that the product suddenly fits into it. So, for instance, he had a piano company that came to him and said, we need to sell pianos. And rather than going out and doing an advert saying, pianos are ace, uh, you know, they make music, they're all clanky, they're great. He's instead created the idea that everyone should have a music room at home and said he got across this idea that a music room made you a cultured upper middle class family and that became a popular idea and obviously once people got into the head that to be upper middle class you haven't need a music room obviously once you've got a music room you've got to buy a piano so it's, it's, it's interesting that there are all these people working on these efforts <clears throat> who, are, who are who seem to be thinking about their next career move beyond the ever and seem to be thinking about advertising as a way as a way to get somewhere else and there's a, there's a there are lots and lots of novelists aren't they who, who have worked in advertising and have gone to be on to be novelists like yes. Rush Salman Rushdie and um, Faye Weldon Faye Weldon Gerald and Aldous Huxley who said I haven't here's another quote it is easier to write 10 passably effective sonnets than one effective advertisement the thing I wanted to ask also was about the effect that adverts have on us in that um, there always seems to be a bit of a paradox or a bit of a tension in the way people talk about adverts as very powerful things and Saatchi and Thatcher and the influence adverts have over other people but people rarely talk about themselves as being influenced and uh, shaped by adverts that they've seen it's always something that happens to to someone else like you know I don't know Morris dancing or something um, so so do can we say a little bit about the effect of adverts on us personally and whether we buy things that we've seen advertised or whether it's a more long-term thing and maybe then the effect of literature on our, on on us and on whether whether they're diff, whether they're comparable comparable things so have you have you been persuaded to buy uh, the hat you're wearing for example now as a result of <laughs> adverts you've seen but is there an immediate <laughs> feeling that if we buy something it will based on an advert that we are weak-willed. We're like those creatures in those Star Wars films when they do the Jedi mind trick, mm -hmm. and that we are weak-minded. We wouldn't admit that in any way we bought the pot noodle because we've seen an advert saying there's laggable snacks. Absolutely. I, th I think it works on different... I think some people... People consume brands in different ways in that some people are very, very proud of having brands all over their clothes and they'll drink... Um, what's the yellow champagne? Champagne in the yellow thing. The one that was always in rap. Crystal, always in the rap songs. Uh, <laughs> look how street we are. Always in the rap songs. Um, and then other people, we, we consume other brands. So people will go, oh, I would never buy something because it's in an advert whilst working on my Apple Mac. Or whilst, I think we all construct our identity based on an image we've seen somewhere. Whether we're wearing a sort of secondhand jacket because we want to see ourselves as a sort of a well-read literary type. So as a as an English lecturer, mm. you wouldn't turn up in an Adidas tracksuit because no. it's it Not doesn't fit. I got into trouble. It doesn't that. fit in with the the image of the English of the well-read man. Yeah. I was looking just this afternoon at the Cabriats, Cabri's advert that features the gorilla or the man dressed as a gorilla playing the drums mm. to Phil Collins in the air tonight which apparently got massive viewing figures and I I boosted it by watching it about 10 times because I loved it. And 10 million hits on YouTube. Yeah. And I was reading a, a little article about it. The director, Juan Cabrel, went on to get lots of awards. Yes. And then at the end of the article, it said, in a remarkable kind of clause at the end, it was even credited with turning around Cadbury's sales. As though this was a, some sort of afterthought yeah. to the process of advertising. And so uh, it's a question of how we judge now, but <clears throat> there's the sort of artistic literary merits and the way it enables subsequent careers. But then there's the sales. And that seems to be... Um, 
not an irrelevance, but it, it doesn't seem to be the whole picture in the way I thought it might be the whole picture. Actually, that's an interesting point, which I hadn't really thought of. But even within the industry, there is a separation between those people who deal with the dirty business of commerce and the creatives. And adverts win awards for creativity, which have been completely unsuccessful in selling any products. Mm. So you're absolutely right. Um, and that tension's within played out in... Sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, within the industry, um, there's confusion about what is a good advert. Yeah. Which and brings us, I mean, perhaps to, an, to the most important question that we could possibly ask is is that the, the ever... Uh, in some ways, we would like probably the popularity of Litbits, if anything, to, to, to perhaps descend slightly. Yeah, it's getting, a bit, it's getting a bit crazy. I think both Adam and I have struggled with... Exactly. Yeah, it was hard getting in here this it evening. But if you were to advertise um, Litbits... Um, I would for the Japanese market. The Japanese market, I would say, well, it's very, very English. They love that. It's sort of a, it's like a vocal version of Burberry. You're sort of English gentlemen discussing English literature over wine. They would go crazy for that. Um, I like that that kind of metaphor, like turning it into something else. Yes, the English version of Burberry. Burberry. The liter- uh, yeah, the vocal, yeah. a vocal Burberry. I we both I enjoy very much if Burberry happened to be listening. I just quietly wanted to read this, just in case it's of, um, which is just a, it's just a stanza from Tom Waits. That's right. It fillets, it chops, it dices, slices, never stops, lasts a lifetime. Mows your lawn and it mows your lawn and it picks up the kids from school. It gets rid of unwanted facial hair. It gets rid of embarrassing age spots. It delivers a pizza and it lengthens and it strengthens. And it finds that slipper that's been at large under the chaise lounge for several weeks. And it plays a mean rhythm master. It makes excuses for unwanted lipstick on your collar. And it's only a dollar. Step right up. It's only a dollar. Step right up. That's all we have time for uh, this evening. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you to Jonathan Thake uh, for giving the advertisers perspective thanks to james kidd as ever we're off to eat to gorge on pot noodle the beef and tomato variety and there'll be a new podcast available very soon